<laughs> so I think most will be familiar with your life story, but just in case uh, there's someone that's not, let's do the elevator talk on that to give it, get everybody up to speed on, on how it is, because I, this is a library, and here we have an author of some 25 books, and some of the books really do tell your, your, your autobiography. Um, and so uh, give us just a brief, a brief, how in the world did somebody from Chicago, a Cubs, <laughs> yeah, fan, of all, yeah, a Cubs <laughs> fan of all people, I was born in St. Louis, so a Cardinals fan through and through, but we, we still love each other in Christ, goes to show you that the gospel can overcome all barriers. Uh, but uh, so how is it that you came to faith in Christ? Yeah, I mean, my um, background's in journalism and law. Uh, I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune and an atheist. Uh, my wife, Leslie, who's here, oh, here, hi, uh, <laughs> who's here this morning, um, was, I, I call her an agnostic. She was just spiritually confused, I think. And uh, it was through the influence of a Christian nurse who she encountered, who became her best friend, who shared Jesus with her and brought her to church. And Leslie um, brought me the news that she had become a follower of Jesus which I thought was the worst news I could get. And uh, I decided to use my journalism training and legal training to investigate Christianity, to try to rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in. I thought I could disprove the resurrection. And so I spent two years of my life um, um, researching um, various issues involving the historical evidence for the faith, especially the resurrection, uh, until November the 8th of 1981, uh, when I concluded that in light of this avalanche of evidence that I encountered, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. And uh, that's when the scales kind of tipped. And um, that's when I um, repented of my sin, received forgiveness through Christ, and, and my life, like hers, began to change. I stayed in journalism for a number of years um, and then felt uh, calling to full-time uh, ministry in a church and uh, left to do that at a 60% pay cut and, um, <laughs> and uh, have enjoyed um, being part of uh, church ministry now for, for a number of years. And now we write and travel and speak and have a new center for evangelism and applied apologetics at Colorado Christian University. So I've met through the years uh, people who have acted in films. I've met directors. I've met producers. You're the first person I've ever met that there's been a movie made about his life. Yeah. Uh, what is the name of the movie? Uh, the Case for Christ. And it's on Netflix, if you all have Netflix. It's, it's free on Netflix. So. Uh, well, Penny and I, uh, uh, when it came out in theaters, we actually put down cash and, awesome. and, and went to go see it. <laughs> awesome. And it was a great movie. Thank I mean, you. I really enjoyed uh, everything, you know, on, on, on a number of levels. I enjoyed how... Uh, I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed uh, the, the the production values. I just thought it was it was very well done. Uh, tell us, um, whenever it's a movie about your life, uh, what kind of control or lack of control do you have? Uh, legally, you have very little control because what happens is they come to you and say, "Hey, we want to do a movie about your life," um, but you'll have no control over it. Uh, and the reason is because they have to go out and raise millions of dollars to make the movie. If I had the control at the end, they make this entire movie, and at the end I say, nah, I don't like it, can't use it. Now all these people have lost millions of dollars, so they, it can't give you veto power. But 
having been trained at Yale Law School, I knew a few things to <laughs> put into the contract. One of the uh, things I put into the contract was that I got to choose a screenwriter. And um, I have a friend who's written 17 movies, and, uh, but he's also a very good friend. I knew he would protect our story. And so um, Brian Bird wrote the screenplay, and uh, we consulted with him extensively. We worked with the, with the actors and actresses um, before the filming. We were on the set for much of the filming. And um, so we, we were able to shape it uh, largely. And really, it's about 80 to 85% accurate, which yeah, is very I, high for a, uh, for a, you know, based on true story movie. As you say, most of them are tangentially related to what really happened. Ours is, I mean, there are scenes that are literally word for word of uh, what happened. And... Um, which is why Leslie cries every time she sees it. In fact, I remember before they released the movie, they sent us a link so we could watch it online. And um, so I came home one day and Leslie was watching the movie. I said, are you watching the movie again? She said, yeah. I said, how many times have you seen it? And what was it, like 15? About 13. 13 uh, times. 13 I said, times. why do you keep watching it? She said, I'm trying to get cried out <laughs> so that when I see it in public, I won't cry. And, uh, and then we saw it in public and we both cried. Because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it, you know, it's tough. Um, you know, there are things in the movie I'm not proud of because it does tell my story of my pre-Christian life. And I was a hard-drinking, narcissistic, um, self-absorbed um, jerk. And um, so it's not comfortable watching that kind of thing. But we're, we're thrilled with the, with the impact. You know, we, we talk about how do we take what we learn in theology and what we learn in seminary and use it uh, to reach people for Christ. Um, well, we've got to use new technology. We've got to use the Internet. We've got to use um, film. Film is the language of young people. Cinema is the language of the millennials and Generation Z. So we ought to be using film effectively to reach people. And the gospel is in the movie. Uh, it went all around the planet. In, in New Zealand, a church rented a movie theater and showed it, and 22 people came to faith. Mm. Um, I met a, a, a pastor at a conference I was at in, in uh, Des Moines a few weeks ago, and he said, my personal ministry, when I meet someone who's not a Christian, I invite him over to my house to watch the movie with me. And I said, oh, that's awesome. He, I said, what's the response been? And he said, well, 27 people have come to faith. So, Amen. you know, it's, it's and, and the, the funny thing, too, is in, in France, which is really a, a post-Christian culture, uh, in Grenoble, um, it was in the movie theaters for like nine weeks. And I got an email from a guy in Grenoble, and he said, we don't know what's happening. There's no money behind it. There's no money to promote it. People just keep coming to this movie. And I think it was just God using it for his purposes. And, and um, so you never know. And so I'm enthused about finding new ways to communicate the gospel in a, in a world where people may not pick up a 300-page book. So now, now my imagination. Is, yeah. <laughs> so in France, um, yeah. does it have subtitles or do you speak with a French accent? Or how, how did they, did they? Did yeah, that's <laughs> a good, I, I think they subtitled it. Okay. Now we did a documentary um, on the case for Christ back in yeah. 2004 that's been on t national television many times. And um, uh, what's interesting about that is there was a wealthy Christian who paid to have it translated into and dubbed into Chinese. And he, he had a million copies of the DVD made, and we smuggled them into China through Hong Kong. Mm. 
And uh, so if you watch that one, I'm speaking Chinese, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. <laughs> Your Chinese is not so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's a, you know, that's a helpful, uh, it's a helpful insight because, you know, when we see movies that sometimes they'll say, inspired by true events, yeah, right. are based on true events, are the Coen brothers, they'll go ahead and just make a joke out of it. You know, they'll say, a true story, when obviously everything about it's fiction. Yeah. But you're saying it very, very close. Very, yeah, very, very close. And because what they do, you're taking a two-year period of our life, which is my two-year investigation, and shrinking it down to 90 minutes. So to do that, to tell the story, you have to use composite characters, you have to time shift, uh, some things. So given those cinematic realities, it's extremely accurate. So let's, uh, <clears throat> speaking of shifting, let's shift gears just a little bit. This is a library talk. Um, you, you are a prolific writer and author. Uh, I think I counted 24 or 25 books that you have. It's like 43. Okay. Well, yeah. I, okay. Then, that then, includes curricula. Then you need to, okay. Yeah. You yeah. need to update your Wikipedia I, I had to do it. Because well, there's a, yeah. <laughs> a lot of You know of what? There. Wikipedia is so funny. First time I had a Wikipedia page, I read the entry. I don't know who did it. Yeah. I read the entry. There were four errors in the first sentence. Well, that should tell us something. Yeah, now. yeah. I mean, I was really stunned how inaccurate it was. But what happened was I was a, a professor of Christian thought at Houston Baptist University for a while, and um, they said, you have to do a CV, you know. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't done a CV in years. So, so here I am. So I had to list all my books. So I'm, I'm checking. I said, and I told Leslie, I said, no wonder I'm exhausted. I've written 43 books. I had yeah. no idea. I would just say more than 20. Uh, but actually, some are, some are ancillary. So, you know, you'll do a book like The Case for Christ, and then you do an excerpt uh, called The Case for Easter and add some new things and make it an a inexpensive giveaway book. So, it's, you know, some of them are kind of cheating. Okay. <laughs> well, you, everyone in this room, just about everyone in this room, is, in, is, is required or involved in some type of writing mm. enterprise as yeah. students. Um, and so, uh, I would really like to pick your brains and, and find out what your habits are concerning the writing project. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking a few things sure. about that. You, you, your degree is in, degrees are in journalism and law. Yeah. Uh, how, at, at what age did you realize, I want to be a writer? Uh, I was in kindergarten. Um, my dad used to uh, read the Chicago Tribune every morning and then he'd and come home on the train reading the Chicago Daily News. Mm -hmm. And so I was exposed and watching him. He was kind of a, he loved newspapers. In fact, he was the sports editor of the Daily Northwestern when he was at uh, law school, at Northwestern Law School. And um, so he had kind of an affinity there. And, and so I, I watched that and, and uh, thought that's what I want to do. So I actually wrote some little books when I was uh, like in first and second grade. I had a friend who would illustrate them and, and I did about half a dozen of these little books. And then I started my own newspaper when I was 12 years old. And I had um, a printing press in my basement and it was a weekly paper and I would interview the police chief. It was in a suburb of Chicago, Arlington Heights. And um, um, I covered things. I had a column called uh, Doggy of the Week where I do a feature on a local dog. Uh, and my, my biggest feature, though, and this was what sold my newspaper, was a babysitter's guide. 
So all these parents are looking for babysitters, and I had a list of all these teenagers in the neighborhood that were willing to babysit. This is before Craigslist and everything. And uh, so that was my big seller. Uh, and we sold advertising. I made some money at it. And, and how old are you at this time? I was between 12 and 14. Okay. when I did about two years. All right. And uh, Huntley Brinkley, which was the old NBC I remember that. Uh, yeah, um, broadcast of news, did a feature on us, on, on the newspaper. And and so we got some notoriety on it. But it was, it was my, I love newspapers. I had printer's ink in my blood. And um, then when I went to high school, um, I started to work in newspapers in the summer. So I would, I actually moved away from home at age 16. And I lived in a boarding house. And I worked in a, a county seat newspaper, a daily paper in Woodstock, Illinois. Covered everything. And uh, did that for three summers, even before I went away to journalism school. Um, so I, you know, I just love the action. I love the, 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 the um, challenge of creating you know, literature on the fly, of, of, of writing things on deadline. And, and so it's, I, I just find, now that was back in the days when newspapers mattered. Yeah. You know, nobody cares about newspapers anymore. So literature done in a hurry. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Right. Yeah. So um, what kind of deadlines, what kind of obligations, how many words, how, how often did you have to write? Well, when I was at Chicago Tribune, um, I went to Yale Law School on a Ford Foundation Fellowship and came back to the Tribune as legal editor. Um, but before I did that, I, was, I, w I covered federal court and criminal court, um, not the same time, different times for the Tribune. So back then, we had um, six deadlines a day. Um, so my first deadline was at 12.30 in the afternoon, then I had another one at 1.30, another one at 3 o'clock, um, and then I had another one at 9 o'clock that evening, and then there were overnight deadlines. Of course, you didn't work on all of them. Uh, so I would cover, let's say I'm covering a trial, uh, a crime syndicate trial or a political corruption trial. Um, you'd have to leave the courtroom um, at the lunch break, quick write your story for the 12.30 edition, and then if you had a chance, you could update it for the 1.30 edition and then for the 3 o'clock edition. But then your main deadline's for 9 o'clock at night, uh, which would be your polished one. And, and most people, that's the one they got in the morning. But they also had updates of that at 1 in the morning, at 2 in the morning, and so forth. So it was a continual process. And um, so I learned to respond to deadlines, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Okay. The, the good part of it is it, it requires you to be productive. Uh, the bad part of it is... Uh, you get, it's like Pavlov's dog. Um, when there's a deadline, you're productive. When there's not, not so much. <laughs> well, that, that brings up, that, that, that's a good segue to um, the, the experience, I would say, for many of our students in that, okay, how do I develop the discipline mm. of being a productive writer where I don't have the deadline yeah. breathing down my neck? Because, you know, I guess what I'm asking is, how did those particular disciplines and skills transfer over from being a journalist to being an, an, an author of books? Well, uh, they translated over in the sense that uh, now that I, I have a four-book contract, for instance, right now with HarperCollins, and I'm on the third book of that contract, uh, and I have a deadline. My deadline is June 30th of next year for my next book. So um, I have to pace myself. Um, my ministry in my book writing is that I'm not a scholar, um, but I, I, I'm a bridge between scholars and everyday folks. And that's where God uses my journalism training. 
So what I do is um, I go out and I interview scholars and I ask them the tough questions I had when I was a skeptic and, and I try to see if they can give answers to satisfy people and uh, then I create this narrative about that experience. Mm -hmm. So like in the case for Christ, I interviewed 13 scholars with PhDs from Brandeis and Cambridge and Yale and major universities and um, uh, try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, as they say. In other words, to, to write their stuff and their, their interview in a way that the average person can understand it. Um, so that's how, so for me, in this new book, for instance, I'm working on, there'll be probably 14 chapters, 12 to 14 chapters, and um, I've, got a, I've got a deadline, so I've got to pace myself, and I have to say, okay, um, so far I've done four interviews, um, so I'm a little behind, um, but I have another one scheduled in a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, for each of my interviews, I've got to read at least 10 books because I've, um, I've got to read the, all the writings of the person, the main writings of the person I'm interviewing, as well as books attacking that person and contrary positions so I understand the whole scope of the issues. Um, so, and then I create, have to create an, um, uh, a set of questions. So, so, so there's a lot of preliminary stuff before I do an interview. So I try to pace it. Uh, so that I'll finish up in time for the deadline. Now, the ugly truth of publishing is that over 90% of authors miss their deadline. Mm -hmm. So it's standard to miss your deadline. Everybody expects you to miss your deadline. I just try to miss it less than other people. <laughs> you know? But I don't think I've ever made it. Have I ever made a deadline? I don't think. No, I haven't made a deadline. Um, but I'm close. I'm okay. fairly close. Yeah. But, so this is, like, this is like horseshoes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, horseshoes <laughs> and hand grenades. Those are two things that, that just need to be close. Yeah. You know? So um, uh, the problem, though, you hit on, which is the deadline thing. Um, the challenge is setting the internal deadlines to meet the big deadline. Well, can, can, we, can we go ahead and talk? Because you, what you're describing, what I hear, is somebody who is very much on a marathon rather than a sprint. Yes. And you, you talk about pacing yourself, you know, June of next year. You, so uh, how do you, in other words, how does, uh, how does Lee Strobel organize his day and his week so that he gets X number of words written yeah. are X number of pages. Tell us, what. Yeah. Yeah, how does that discipline work? To me, the book writing process isn't really a marathon as much as you use the word sprint and marathon. To me, it's a series of sprints. Okay. Because I try to break the book up. The average book is 8 to 12 chapters. That's, that's the average book. And how many words would that end up uh, 60,000 and up. Okay. Uh, most of my books are about 100,000, 110,000. Okay. Uh, but the you know your contract says sixty thousand, so that you can get by on that. But generally, my books are about a hundred thousand. Um, but I don't think in terms of words uh, or word count. I think in terms of uh, the sprints. So if I've got twelve chapters, I have twelve sprints, and what do I have to do for each of those sprints? I've got to come up with the topic. I've got to identify the scholar I want to interview. That's a big process. Who's the best person? Um, I have to approach them and, and sell them on the idea of allowing me to do it. I pay them okay. because I think it's only fair and using their expertise. Um, I have to then read their books and read the opposing books. I've got to formulate the questions. I have to travel to where they are. I tape record the interviews. I use a wonderful website. If you're doing research, you ought to know about this website. It's called rev.com, R-E-V.com. And they have a transcript service. 
and they will, if you record an interview, or let's say you're on YouTube and you, you see a two-hour YouTube video, and you think, oh man, I'd love a transcript of this that I could really work with, but I don't want to sit there for two hours. And all you got to do is, is go to Rev and put the link in, or if you do your own recording, you just plug your recorder in and download it, and they charge a dollar a minute, or you can get uh, dirty transcripts, which are you know, a little speedier for like 10 cents a minute, and they'll do the transcript, and they do it like that. Used to take me days yeah. to do a transcript, days, and I hated it. Um, now, I just did one the other day. I interviewed Dr. Chad Meister, a philosopher at uh, you know Chad. Chad? I know yeah, Chad. Great guy. He was a volunteer in my ministry when he started out. And um, so that, that interview was um, about three hours long, and I plugged it into Rev, and they had the transcript within about four hours. It's, it's fantastic. You've just changed their lives. Yeah. I mean, I tell you, it <laughs> save you all this time. And the new service, the Ten Cent, which is yeah. a little dirtier version, um, um, golly, that's cheap. Yeah. Um, I use a dollar thing because I need it real accurate. But um, So anyway, there's, so I see it as a series of sprints. And, and I tell people going to do a book, for instance, or a huge project like a doctoral dissertation. Um, if you think about it as being a 100,000-word project, you're... You, you're going to freak yourself out, you know. Um, think they of freak it. out on a 3,000-word paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> think about them shorter bites, shorter sprints to achieve that. Now, my problem is, you asked about my schedule and so forth, my problem back to the deadline thing is I have very sloppy work habits. Um, and the reason is I'm deadline-driven. Mm -hmm. So if I, my deadline is approaching, I'm working 24-7. I'm... You know, up in the middle of it, I'm working constantly. But, like, right now, June of next year, eh, okay. Well, let's go on vacation. You know, let's, I'm going to play with the grandkids. I'm not uh, sure I want you to. Yes. <laughs> you just, you just got to have strong deadlines. That's the thing. So I get up about 9 o'clock in the morning, and I do some email, and we have some breakfast, and then we say, let's go out to lunch, and then we go out to an early lunch, and we get back about 1.30, and then I say, oh, I should start maybe working, and then, <laughs> and then I say, no, there's other things I could do, and, and um, so I'll, I'll start to work a little bit, and honestly, I, I don't have good work habits. They're, the only reason I'm productive is because of the deadlines. Okay. I have a friend named uh, Bill Butterworth. Uh, he was voted and received the honor as the number one public speaker in America. So he's a humorist, but he's also a theologian in his own right. Mm -hmm. And uh, is a terrific speaker, does a lot churches and fantastic. Anyway, he writes books as a ghostwriter. And so a person who wants to do a book but isn't a writer will hire him to do the book for them and to interview him. But he's so disciplined. He gets up first thing in the morning. He said, I'm gonna, he breaks down the project. I need to do 2,000 words a day uh, in order to meet this deadline. And so I'm going to sit down at, at 7 a.m. and I'm going to work till 2 in the afternoon. And I'm going to write my 2,000 words every day before I do anything else. And he tells me this. And I said, I just want to hug you. That's so fantastic. I wish I could do that. Yeah. But I can't. Yeah. Um, I'm just in my bad habits, and so the deadlines drive me. And um, but the deadlines do are they are effective for you? That's right. And so yeah. if students have a deadline on a paper, yes. this is a grace. 
Yes. This is a good thing. It is, it is a good thing. Because <laughs> you know what? Honestly, most of us would be very unproductive if there were no deadlines. Right. You know, we have good intentions. Someday I want to write a book. You know, but we never get it done. Right. You got to have a deadline. You got to have some enforcement. And uh, well, let, let's uh, talk a little bit then about some of the projects you have done. You. You, you you have of course the case for yeah. series. Yeah. Uh, so what would be every you know m most everyone is familiar with the case for Christ. Yeah. And if you ha don't have it, uh, my encouragement to you is get multiple copies, uh, so that whenever you have that person who is the skeptic, or who is who is not you know you 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 have those kind of obstacles. You say. I have got just the book for you. Uh, I do that often, mm. where just hand them uh, a copy and say, you know, just keep it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about, because you can get, what, 11, 12? Oh, you can get the, yeah, uh, you, can get yeah. Yeah. you can get the mass market version, uh, cover price is nine, yeah. and they discount it to about six. So. Yeah, yeah, that's, it'll be, it's, it's worth, it's worth the expense to have that on hand. Uh, so you have the case for Christ. Yeah. Say some of the other series yeah. that you have that you like that's that you feel really good about. Yeah, uh, the case for Creator. I think it's up here. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, case for Creator, uh, which is scientific evidence for God. So it looks at cosmology, physics, biochemistry, genetics, human consciousness. Um, so it's the affirmative case. I do critique neo Darwinism in it, but primarily it's it's the affirmative case for God from science. Um, and then the case for faith, um, I did a national survey through George Barna, and I asked a cross-section of Americans, if you could ask God any one question and you knew he'd give you an answer right now, what would you ask him? And I took the top eight objections or questions that people have and went to experts and scholars, and those, that book answers those questions. Uh, so that's the case for faith. Um, I have the case for Easter, which is a, 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 an inexpensive giveaway book, you can get it for a buck on Amazon um, that looks at the evidence for the resurrection. The case for Christmas, and by the way, this is a time of year when I call my publisher and I have to buy them. I, I, I send me, um, you know, 100 copies of the case for Christmas because it's an inexpensive book. You can get it for a buck each online um, that you can give away at, mm -hmm. around Christmas. So around this time of year, I'll start at a restaurant. I'll leave a nice tip and I'll engage with the server and uh, sign the book for them and, and leave them a copy of the case for Christmas. But it's a great way to, to get out um, uh, the message of Christ. Um, the case for grace, uh, one of my favorites, is a book of um, incredible stories of God's grace in saving the most unlikely candidates for conversion. So it's, it's drug abusers, it's uh, homeless, it's, it's one guy that murdered 20,000 people. Um, it's, um, um, in fact, I had so many extraordinary stories of God saving and changing the lives of these people. I realized I got to have a normal person in this book because people are going to read this book and say, well, these people needed God. I don't need God. I'm a nice guy, you know? So I had to find a real normal guy. And I don't know if you know Craig Hazen from Biola University. Yeah. Okay, he's head of their apologetics program. Just the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Yeah. So I interviewed him about how he realized he needed forgiveness through nice Christ. Nice guys need Jesus too. Oh, I yeah. should have titled that. I like that. That's good. I'm going to write that down. Uh, my next book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the case for grace. Uh, my new book is The Case for Miracles, which, um, you know, I believe uh, in the miracle of the resurrection, which brought me to faith. 
I believe the miracles of the New Testament and so forth because I believe they're well documented. And, um, uh, but I had the question, does God still do miracles today? How do we know? Is there good evidence that God still divinely intervenes in people's lives? And so I spent two years investigating the supernatural. And that book looks at that issue, which is fascinating. Uh, so that's the case for miracles. And then uh, I have the case for hope, uh, which is a little gift book that, uh, for people who are struggling with um, depression or with um, difficult life circumstances to say there is hope. And um, so I think that's all the case books. Um, and then I've done a, a series of other books. I did uh, What Jesus Would Say to Madonna and to Bill Clinton and to um, all these other famous figures. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting book. Um, uh, I did a book called uh, Inside the Mind of Unchurched Harry and Mary. Yeah, I, I, Remember that? That was yeah. my first Christian book. Yeah. Um, my first book was a secular book, as far as a Christian, called Reckless Homicide. And it was about the Ford Pinto trial. These people are too young to remember the Ford Pinto. But the Ford Pinto was a car designed by Ford Motor Company that had the unfortunate tendency to blow up uh, when hit from behind in a moderate or low-speed crash. 65 people burned, burned to death in Pintos that should not have. They should have walked away. And um, they were criminally charged in the, the killing of three girls, Christian girls, who were killed in a car crash. And I covered that trial, and I got... I happened to get these secret Ford memos uh, from Ford Motor Company that proved that Ford knew in advance that uh, the danger of the car. So I did that book, and um, yeah. Anyway, well, some. speaking of your 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 experience as a journalist and dealing with criminal cases, yeah. and you as an author. Uh, about 2011, uh, you did something a little different that I, I found very interesting in that you wrote uh, a work of fiction yes. uh, called The Ambition. Yeah. And um, it's a grown-up book. I mean, it has, <laughs> it has murder, it has, yeah. it has greed, it ha you, know, you have a megachurch pastor that's running for... for uh, a, tell, tell us about the book and, yeah. and how in the world did you think, okay... Yeah. Um, well, you know, all I'd written is nonfiction. I'm so wed to facts as a journalist that even when I tell an anecdote in a sermon or something, I got the facts are all exactly right, you know, and I just try to get everything accurate. Well, my daughter is a novelist. She's had half a dozen novels published under her maiden name, Alison Strobel. And contemporary fiction, she's very talented. Um, and uh, she said to me, Dad, you should write a novel. And I said, I can't, I can't write fiction. I'm, I'm a journalist. She said, I'll give it a try. It'll spread your wings a little bit. I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. Well, Dudley Delfs, who's a fiction editor at HarperCollins, uh, kind of took me under his wing and coached me a bit on writing a novel. So I wrote this novel. And the novel has true stuff in it from my experience in Chicago. For instance, I talk a lot about judicial corruption. And uh, the cases that I talk about in the book are true. I mean, they really happen, but I fictionalize them. And so there's a lot of true things in the book. But it's a, it's a John Grisham-type legal thriller uh, about a, um, um, a megachurch pastor who's politically ambitious and is trying to get appointed to a an open Senate seat after the senator dies. And, um, uh, he's, uh, and so he's kind of questionable, and, and the crime syndicate's involved, and there's a murder and all this stuff. And, and so I wrote this book, and uh, I was pretty proud of it. I mean, I thought it was okay. And uh, it was published, 
It bombed. <laughs> I have stacks of this book in my attic. If anybody wants a copy, let me know. Because they said, hey, Lee, your book is going out of print. And um, we'll give you as many you want at a dollar each. So give me all you got because my great-great-grandkids are never going to see it unless I keep a few copies around. So um, what we found out is very interesting. My tribe, my readership, yeah. doesn't read fiction generally. I tend to write to people like me who like facts, who like data, who like, you know, evidence. And those kind of folks don't often translate. So if you go on Amazon, it's interesting, you'll know, you'll see people who bought this book also bought and they'll mention other books. Well, if you go to my books, it never shows a novel under these other books. So my tribe doesn't follow that. We thought some would follow and just because I wrote it made me read it. Uh, that didn't happen. So we tried to sell the movie rights. That didn't go anywhere. So it's kind of a dead issue. But so thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> we all have to have well, a big Well, I was thinking hopefully, you, you know, you, C.S. Lewis, you, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, he was better than me, that's for sure. Well, uh, <laughs> what apologetics uh, writers in the past or in mm. the present, ha present uh, have had the greatest influence on you that you'd say, boy, I that was really good? Oh, golly. Um, you know, when I was doing my investigation um, into Christianity, uh, that was in the late um, 70s, there was very little out there in apologetics. Norman Geisler had one book, I think. Um, Josh McDowell had a couple of popular level books. Um, uh, there was very little. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, there's a lot out there, and, there's, and a lot of it's really good. Um, for instance, uh, I have a friend named Jay Warner Wallace, mm -hmm. who's a, um, he was a homicide investigator, um, detective. He would solve cold cases. So he would solve 30-year-old murders that nobody else could solve. He's been on Dateline so often, they call him the evidence whisperer. And uh, so he solved, so he was an atheist like I was, but he uses detective skills to investigate the New Testament to try to determine is it trustworthy. And... Um, spent a couple of years doing that and coming to faith and, be, and getting a degree in apologetics and now he, he writes and speaks and, and um, still does the homicide investigations yeah, too. I, they call it cold case Christianity? Cold case Christianity. Yeah. I ended yeah. up writing the forward to it and it's terrific. Uh, just a different take, just a different approach. Mm -hmm. My friend, uh, late friend, uh, Nabil Qureshi, uh, mm -hmm. who was a Muslim turned uh, Christian. Um, he was a medical doctor. It was challenged to uh, investigate Christianity. He did and uh, became an incredible um, uh, evangelist um, to the Islamic community. And um, he wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I remember he sent it to me, he said, would you write the foreword? And I said, sure. So he sent me the manuscript. And I remember one night I'm reading, it was late at night, I'm reading the first part of the book. And I, put, I said, this is fantastic. And I called him up I said, where did you learn to write? I mean, it just, it, it is a remarkably well-written book, and the content is fantastic. And so when I meet people who are from that background, who are Muslim, and, um, that's the first book I recommend to them. It's really, really, really good. Um, and then, um, golly, there's uh, Mark Middleberg, who's been my ministry associate now. We've been best friends and, and buddies for, since 1987. Um, and we've done a bunch of books together. Uh, including a new devotional called the Case for Christ Devotional, which is a 180-day devotional uh, based on apologetics. 
So we do a lot of stuff together. His stuff is terrific. You talk about putting cookies in the bottom shelf. He is, he is probably the best person I've ever encountered to um, communicate complex theological truths and apologetics uh, arguments into everyday language. He's just phenomenal at it. He has a degree in um, philosophy of religion from Trinity. And um, so he, his stuff is terrific to give away and, and, and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff out there. Of course, C.S. Lewis, everybody, you know, he's a beginning point and an end point for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, just incredibly profound. Um, and so those are some that come to mind. Well, uh, let me open the uh, floor for questions. Uh, open the questions to the floor. What questions might you have uh, from what you've heard him say? Are you've always wanted to have the opportunity to ask uh, Lee Strobel uh, certain things? I I've picked his brains about writing. Uh, what uh, what questions do you have? Yes. I have one. Um, you mentioned how you stayed in journalism for quite a while. After yeah. Did you notice any changes in how you did your journalism? Oh, that's a good, good question. Do that's I need to question. repeat the question? Uh, yeah, um, we're recording. So yeah. what, she, what, what she asked is, is that how did coming to faith change the way you did journalism? Or did it, you know? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. Uh, I remember coming to faith on November the 8th of 81. And coming into work uh, the following day and looking around the newsroom for the first time as a Christian. And we had a thousand people in that newsroom that worked in that newsroom. You can imagine, that was back when newspapers were really, you know, the happening place. Uh, and I looked around and I could identify three who were Christians that I, that I was sure were. Now, there were probably some others, but there were only three that I was sure. Uh, it's not a profession that attracts a lot of Christians. And so the first thing that changed me was looking around and seeing how undiverse this newsroom is. You know, we talk about racial diversity, we talk about a lot of different kinds of diversity. One kind we don't talk about is spiritual diversity. Um, New York Times, actually, uh, their senior editor did talk at one point and say we need to do a better job of getting religious diversity in our newsroom. And I, that opened my eyes for the first time and thought we are a very homogenized group of people when it comes to faith. We're a bunch of skeptics. And yes, our profession tends to attract that, but we need to then counter that in some way. So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing is I became an editor shortly after that at a newspaper in Missouri. And um, so here I am, I'm a boss at a small newspaper. Uh, I have 44 employees in the newsroom. And I realized I need to run this as a Christian. And um, the first thing I did is I hired a religion writer because I thought, you know, more people go to church every weekend and go to every sporting event in America. Uh, and yet newspapers don't cover religion very much. So I hired a guy. Today, he happens to be the president of the American Bible Society. Hmm. So he's, uh, he's grown quite a bit. Um, but um, uh, so I, I noted I wanted, to, I wanted to be able to cover that stream of news and, and uh, cultural significance to the readership that was, had not previously been covered. We did some investigative reporting back then into some prison conditions, into uh, something very controversial because we were the home of the University of Missouri, and we did an expose of uh, the basketball program, and uh, we were not very popular in town, uh, an expose of illegal uh, money transactions and things. And so I got our team together, and I said, look, 
we have to be incredibly fair. We have to be balanced. We have to be. Uh, we have to tell both sides of the story. We can't get ahead of our skis. We've we've got to be honest. We've got to be. So I, I really tried to enforce a policy of um, honest reporting and uh, and real conscientious reporting um, uh, to tell both sides of stories. I remember telling my staff because um, they were. 90%, well, except for the religion guy, they were all non-believers. And I said, you know, if you write a story on a topic like abortion, when I read your story, I don't want to be able to tell if you are pro-life or pro-choice. I want to read that story and say, I have no idea where the writer of that story stands because he really or she really tells both sides. And so I believed in the old, you know, quote unquote, objectivity reporting. Uh, we can never be totally objective, but we need to tr strive for that. And so I, I, I told people, especially in these controversial issues where there are people of faith often look differently than the people who typically run newsrooms. We have to be able to write that in a way that, that a Baptist would read it and say, I don't know if that guy is pro-abortion or not. So um, that was ever more important for me. It was important to me previously, but ever more important as I came to faith. Um, I did identify a few people as time went by who were fellow Christians, um, and um, we kind of formed a little organization of Christians and secular journalism to try to encourage each other and, and pray for each other and try to find uh, ways we could uh, be better at what we do. I remember telling the Christians I knew in journalism, you have to be better than your colleagues. You have to be the best person in the newsroom because they will not respect you and they won't respect your faith if you're a lazy and an inaccurate and an unfair reporter. You've got to be the best. And so that's what we strive to be. And I, I think it's incumbent on Christians, regardless of, of the profession they ha uh, God has us in, we've got to be the best at what we do. Um, you know, the Bible says, whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord. And um, um, so I... I, I stress that to the Christians who are in the newsroom. Um, so those are, those are some things. I, I think, you know, you face a, a difficult position, though, when you become an editor. You know, you, you don't want to be perceived as someone who's going to be biased against the nonbelievers. Um, if you're known as being a Christian, you have to be very careful to be even-handed. Uh, I do remember once I went on a missions trip to uh, India and, um, for three weeks, and I, and I came back and... Um, uh, one of the um, um, reporters said, well, tell us about your trip. And I said, ah, you know, and I'm, I'm wrestling with how much can I really say in this secular context as their boss. Um, and, and I said, um, well, golly, why don't we, uh, during lunch hour, why don't we all bring a lunch tomorrow and we'll go into the uh, conference room and we'll just have, you know, bags lunch, and I'll show you my slides and tell you the story. So... Um, we did. They all brought their lunch, and I thought, on lunch hour, it's free time. We can talk about whatever. So I, I showed them the slides of people coming to faith and baptizing people in the Krishna River and all this stuff. And, and I'll never forget that the time was clicking down, and we were like two minutes to the end when we all had to go back to work. And I turned on the lights, and I said, anybody got any questions? And a guy named Pete, one of our writers, raised his hand. He said, you talked about these people becoming Christians, what does that involve? Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a nice segue. What a nice segue. Yeah. But I only had by that time about 90 seconds <laughs> to, to summarize the gospel. And I did. And, um, 
And you know what? I just heard last week, I spoke in Chicago at an event, and a woman came up to me who'd been on my staff back then. And, and she, um, I don't know if she was a Christian then, but she is now. And uh, she told me that one of the guys in that room, who was actually uh, my equal at, at the paper, um, a guy who I never thought would come to faith, um, really a hard-bitten editor, um, has now given his life to Christ. Mm. And, um, you know, it just shows, you know, we, we can never predict what God is going to do. Uh, so that's, that's some ways that, that things change. Excellent question. Next question. Yeah, yes. Question. Carson. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Schroeder. Your books were really helpful to me in college. Oh, great. Case for Christ and Case for Creator, especially when I was at a secular university and sorting through. Yeah, uh, great. Genesis. You were part of crew? Uh, no, oh, no, okay. I was not. Okay, great. Yeah, down in Georgia. So my question for you is, I know you've been to a lot of college campuses for debates or panel discussions. Yeah. Uh, I think I was listening to a Tim Keller, Jonathan Haidt uh, discussion at New York University the other day, and one of them remarked that they, they thought there were actually fewer debates and discussions like that on mm. college campuses these days mm. about religion, where you have a, a Christian and an atheist yeah. kind of Kindly debating each other. Right. I'm just curious from your perspective if you feel like the landscape has shifted any at college campuses in terms of people being. Let me repeat it. Mm. Truth from historical empiricism. Yeah. Looking into these facts right. uh, versus just arriving at truth from personal experience. Mm. This is what I feel. And so I just I don't know if you would agree with that. So yeah. Yeah. Great question, Carson. Uh, the question that Carson has asked is. Uh, how has the college campus situation and environment and ambiance changed? Uh, there are those who are saying, observing, there seems to be fewer debates or a, a less of a willingness to have uh, a, a, an objective conversation. Uh, how do you see the landscape changing in that way on college campuses and, I guess, in culture in general? Yeah. You know, I don't do that much on college campuses, to be honest. Um, uh, most of my ministry is not on college campuses. So... But I do a lot of debate organizing. I'm not a debater myself, but uh, I've organized and moderated quite a few. Um, there is, in one sense, um, fatigue that can come in because so many people walk away feeling like at loggerheads with the outcome of the debate. And so why go through that again? I've heard that before, or um, um, it didn't change my mind the first time. It's not going to change my mind a second time. Um, and, and so there, there might be some fatigue with that. Um, and as you say, there may be some, um, you know, in an age where you have your truth and I have my truth, um, I'm not that interested in, uh, in objective truth and so forth. But my experience has been that uh, overall in culture, there's a great interest in debates and a great curiosity um, uh, about that kind of um, um, encounter. I did a TV show for two years, a national network TV show called Faith Under Fire. And it was just debates. It was a, de you know, and of course they were short, it was a TV show, and I was an hour program, and we'd do maybe three or four little 15-minute debates um, uh, between a Christian and a Muslim, between a Christian and an atheist, between a um, um, Deepak Chopra I had on, uh, New Ager versus a Christian. 
And we had great, we were actually, our ratings were bigger than um, Larry King, who was on CNN at the time. Um, but our network went out of business, and, and so it, the show ended. Um, but we found there was quite a bit of interest. Um, the, the debates that I moderated, um, we've had incredible um, receptivity when we put them on satellite or we put them on through the Internet and, and uh, to churches around the country. So a few years ago, for instance, we, I, I moderated a debate out in California uh, between the guy who sued to have under God removed from the pledge and from the coins and stuff, um, uh, Dr. Newdow, and um, a Christian apologist. And um, we had that. That went, we, we beamed that into almost a thousand churches around the country uh, who then invited people to watch it on big screens. So we had, we had a lot of interest in that. I find in my personal ministry that um, if I run into someone who's a really strong skeptic, I'll, I'll say to them sometimes, um, you know, would you be interested in hearing a debate between one of the smartest Christians in the world and one of the smartest atheists in the world? Would that interest you at all? Well, almost all of them say, well, yeah, that would be interesting. Okay, then we go on YouTube and I show them the debate between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens mm -hmm. and, uh, at Biola University a few years ago. And there's always interest. So I think there's a role for it. I think it is possible that in this day when um, uh, you know, people have their own truth and so forth, there, there, may, there may be some who may not buy into it. Greg? Yes, question. Um, <clears throat> you've got a genius for structuring things in powerful ways mm. that we can Use. And um, when you first converted, you were still among journalists. Yeah. Did you get a way to Let me let me let me repeat. You talk about the colleagues? Colleagues and yeah. other students might come up to you yeah, and gotcha. they found out your conversion. Yeah. And they So whenever you converted, you're in the journalism world, how how did you how did you do you witness or how did you share your faith with yeah. other journalists when the opportunity arose? You, you know, it, it was very interesting the reaction I got. Um, of course, they would all say to me, yeah, that's great, good for you, you know. But then behind the scenes, I heard people comments like, Strobel's got Jesus now, <laughs> you know, Strobel's gone crazy. Um, you know, there was all kinds of reactions. And um, I found that um, um, not a lot of them were that curious about what led me there. But some were. And I'll tell you the story where um, I was a, a new Christian and I had never really shared my faith before. And um, so, like you had mentioned, I prayed. It was the beginning of a day, and it was going to be a hard day. We had a lot of deadlines coming up. It was going to be, you know, you get a list every day as, a, as an editor of all the upcoming stuff that day. There's going to be a news conference on such and such. This trial is going to come to a verdict. You know what's basically going to come, and then other things will happen too. But I'm looking at the list, and I'm realizing it's going to be a bad day. It's going to be a busy day. So I prayed. I'm a new Christian. I said, God, I need your help. 
because in the past, I would have lost my temper. I would have flown off the handle. I, I, please help me handle this day in a way that will be a good um, witness to my fellow uh, journalists. God answered that prayer. And uh, it, it, was, it was remarkable that it, it all studied together. Well, at the end of the day, my boss came up and he said, Strobel, man, I watched you today. I can't believe how you kept your cool. I mean, this was a really bad day. You really handled this well. And then earlier he invited me to play golf on a Sunday. And I said, oh, I can't. I'm going to be at church. So he knew I was a Christian. So he said to me, so is there a connection between that and the fact that you go to church on Sunday. And so I kind of froze because I'd never shared my faith before and, and I'd never been taught how to do it or anything. And so I kind of had a split second decision to make there. Whoa, what do I do? Do I make a joke of it? Hey, you know what happens in church stays in church, you know? Um, or what do I do? And so I split second prayer, God, what do I say? And I said to him, do you really want to know? And he said, yeah. So I said, let's go in your office. So we went into his office, closed the door, and for the next 45 minutes, I shared my faith. It was the most inept <laughs> example of witnessing that has probably ever occurred on planet Earth. And I'd not been trained in this. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm stumbling around. I'm trying to tell about all this investigation I did. It's, it's incoherent, but I'm, I'm passionate. I'm, I'm, um, and, and I explained the gospel as best I could. And I remember, and by the way, his parents had both been killed in an airplane crash several years earlier, and it had made him hardened against God, and I knew that. And, and so I was trying to take that into account. And, so at the end of the 45 minutes, I walked out of that office and it was as if my entire life had been a motion picture up until that time. And it was filmed on black and white film, 16 millimeter, scratchy sound, uh, that old, you know, crummy black and white movie. That, that was my life. But that 45 minutes was like Technicolor with Dolby Stereo. That changed my life because I said, I need more of this in my life. This is what my life needs to be about, those kind of conversations, leading people toward faith. And so that, that changed my life, and, and I ended up leaving journalism within a short period after that and, and um, um, to spend my life, the best hours of my day, sharing Christ with others. So... Um, so he, you know, to this day, um, he's not a believer. Um, you know, he, he was really affected by his parents being killed, and, and um, it's a hard thing to get beyond. But uh, we still, I'm still in contact with him and praying for him. I mentioned this other colleague that did come to faith. Um, so um, there were a few that expressed curiosity, but I think a lot of them, it was like touching the third rail. On a subway, you don't do that. You know, who knows what I'm going to find out. Uh, yeah, struggle, good for you. You know, they, they were condescending a bit. Um, so, One last question. Nancy. Yeah, speaking of some of those types of conversations that you want to spend your life on. Yeah. And yesterday you mentioned having, a, a, I guess it was a spiritual discovery or like a super yeah. friendly kind of group at your yeah. church. And it sounds like this is very much a part of your personal life. Um, my husband and I are having a lot of non-believers into our home very regularly, and awesome. we're trying to keep the door open for questions, but we're not apolog apologists. Yeah, that's all right. Church. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm just wondering, like, what 
What can we do? Yes. What can we do with our churches? Yes. Let me repeat the question. That's a great question. Yeah, for somebody who doesn't feel like they're a great journalist or, you know, they're, they're, they're an expert and apologist, yet they are very interested in reaching their friends and neighbors and they're, they're, they're having their doors open. Yeah. Uh, what would you recommend for them? What, what yeah. should they do? Yeah, I mentioned in the, in the chapel thing about these spiritual discovery groups that uh, I think are the next wave of evangelism. And the reason I say that is Generation uh, Z and millennials and so forth, young people, um, love to talk, right? They love to tell their opinion. They love to discuss things. They're, they're social in that way. And so what we did um, at our church in Chicago is I hired a guy named Gary Poole who uh, started doing these kind of spiritual discovery groups at Indiana University when he was a, um, uh, a new Christian in a secular school. And he would invite his fellow students to come to talk about spiritual stuff. And he learned how to do these groups, how to, you know, you want to be outnumbered by the non-believers. So you want like half a dozen non-believers and then generally two leaders of the group, a husband, wife, or a Christian and an apprentice. Um, Christian who's going to, and so um, he learned how to do these groups. Um, so I hired him and I said, just organize these groups at our church. Pretty soon he had 1,100 non-believers in these groups. We tracked them over a period of years and guess what we found out? If a non-believer joined one of these groups and stayed in it, 80% came to faith in Christ. 80%. There's a church in California that copied our format and does these groups. They've never had a non-believer join a group and not become a Christian. A hundred percent. They all become Christians. These are, this is dynamite. The Alpha thing, you've probably heard of Alpha. Alpha is kind of a permutation of this, but this is a little bit different. Um, uh, and so I'm very bullish on these groups. I, I think, I really believe they can be a next wave. I think every church ought to offer these groups. Any church, whether it's liturgical, whether it's, it doesn't matter um, what your format is. Any church can have these groups. It's exceedingly easy to get people into these groups. Um, um, and here's the key. You said you're not an apologist necessarily. You don't need to be one. In fact, here's an interesting fact. The worst leaders of these groups are the apologists. <laughs> and the reason is they disrupt things or they short-circuit things. So somebody will express, you know, I my... my um, my dad just died a couple of weeks ago, and man, you know, where's God in that? How can there be a God? He allows death and all this stuff. And the apologist will say, oh, well, let me explain to you why they have evil and suffering in the world. And yeah, I've got a five-point sermon on that. I could give a sermon on that. And so they give a sermon on that, and to which the person says, oh, okay. And it short-circuits everything. Yeah. We teach people who lead these groups not to answer the questions. Um, strategically, as a way of answering the question. And here's what we mean by that. So if someone like that asks, why does a loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? Instead of giving an answer, we train them to ask a follow-up question. The follow-up question is, oh, well, in light of all the possible questions in the universe, why is that the one you want to ask God? And then they get to the real personal side. Then they get to the fact that their father died or, or their wife has cancer or whatever it is. And now you, you can minister them on a personal, emotional level. And we find that that's the level where people are more open than just, to, just sparring over facts. So the key thing to understand about these groups is 
you are not the Bible answer man or the Bible answer lady who sits there and takes tough questions from people in the group. No, you're there to facilitate a discussion. And you listen to all kinds of heresy and wild stuff that these people say, and you bite your tongue, and you let them talk, but you ask them questions. How do you know that's true? And, and where did you learn that? And, and, and it helps them diagnose the fact they don't really know what they believe. And then it opens your possibility for you to tell your story and, and how you came to faith and, and um, um, why you believe Christianity is true. Um, I think these groups are absolutely dynamite. And um, so one of the things we're doing at our center in Colorado is um, trying to equip churches and pastors to spawn these groups in every, every church. Uh, if you want to learn how to do these groups, like for instance, how do you get people into groups? I said it's easy. And people say, it can't be easy. No, it is really easy. Um, I prevailed on Gary to write a book because I said, you've got to help people do these groups. So he wrote a book. We call these groups spiritual discovery groups, but back then we call them seeker small groups. And so that's the name of the book, Seeker Small Groups. It is an A to Z guide on how you can do a group like this or how you as a church leader can organize a ministry like this to have these groups. It's fantastic. Gary still consults with churches around the country and doing these groups. And um, I really think it's the future because it facilitates discussion that people really want to have. People are more interested in talking about God than we give them credit for. So that's, we, we think they're going to be standoffish. We think they're going to be hesitant. Get them talking. The biggest challenge of these groups is they're only an hour and 15 minutes. Every session is only an hour and 15 minutes. Or it's strictly enforced. You can't shut people up. Once they start talking, you can't stop them. And, and these groups just become incredibly robust and, and exciting and fun. So uh, anyway, I'm excited about that. I'm going to mention it tomorrow in chapel. But uh, I think there's a lot of potential there for uh, reaching people. So the book young is people. called? Seeker Small Groups. And it's by Gary Poole. Gary with two R's, Poole. Um, I once was talking about these groups, and I said Seeker Small Groups. And a woman came up to me later, and she said, why are these groups secret? I said, no, no, not secret. Seeker. Seeker. Like a spiritual seeker. <laughs> well, on this uh, book recommendation, we will have to close our conversation. Um, what a delight it's been to get to hear from uh, uh, Pastor Strobel. Why don't you join me in showing our appreciation to him?